I've many times heard people say in reference to a church or a ministry or in reference even to their own individual life that God doesn't seem to be doing anything. God just isn't working. God isn't blessing. And certainly as you look around at various churches, you see those in which God is actively blessing, where people are being saved and where opportunities seem to be abundant and where things are happening. And on the other hand, you see churches where nothing is happening, where God doesn't seem to be blessing at all. Now, why is that? What's the problem? Is it on God's side? Is it that God doesn't want to work? Is it that God isn't interested in working in his church? Or is it on our side? Is it that we in some way hinder what God wants to do? Is it that we aren't the kind of tools that God can work through? Well, I think we'd all admit that the problem lies with us. That's not really the question. The question is, what do we need to do to see God's blessing? What conditions do we need to meet in order to see God work in our midst? What are the qualities of a church that is accomplishing things for God? Well, we're going to see the answer to that in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, as we examine the church in Philadelphia. And this is the church that saw things happen. This is the faithful church. This is the fruitful church. This is the evangelistic church, the missionary church. This is the church about which people were saying God is really blessing them. God is really working there. God's really active in their midst. And don't we want to hear people say that about us? And as we go through this passage, let's try to learn some things from the church in Philadelphia. Let's see what qualities they possess that cause God to work in their midst. Notice verse 7 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now, this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's Philadelphia, Turkey. And it was located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was a relatively new city founded about 150 B.C. by the king of Pergamos. Its name, of course, means brotherly love. And it was a city that was known for the fact that it had been destroyed several times by earthquakes. Apparently, they lived on a fault line, which we can relate to. And it was most recently, the city was most recently rebuilt in 17 A.D. And they were plagued by periodic earth tremors, which would kind of startle everyone. They were sort of known as a rather unstable city because oftentimes they would find themselves fleeing out of the city when the tremors would start. It was a city that was strategically located in a valley pass which opened into half of Asia Minor, so it was known as a gateway city with much traffic flow, and it's as if Christ kind of plays on that a little bit in this, in this letter to them because he refers to them as the church with the open door to opportunity. Its land was rich in agricultural value. Grapes were one of the principal crops that they grew. But the church in Philadelphia is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. And so all that we know about this church we find out in these verses in Revelation chapter 3. It was a faithful church with great opportunities, a church that was greatly used and blessed by God. In fact, Christ has nothing negative to say about this church. And notice how Christ addresses them in verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, in every one of the letters that we've seen in Revelation 2 and 3, we've seen how Christ has taken a particular aspect out of John's vision in chapter 1 to introduce himself and describe himself to each church. This is the exception, because Christ's description here doesn't come from John's vision in chapter 1. And I think the reason for that is that the description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 is a description of him coming in judgment. When he comes to the church at Philadelphia, he's not coming in judgment. This is the Christ-honoring, Christ-pleasing church. And so he doesn't describe himself in terms of the way he's going to come in judgment. He describes himself in a different way to them. And the way he describes himself is that he chooses to use three attributes of God. He says, I'm the one who is holy, I'm the one who is true, and I'm the one who is sovereign. I open and close all the doors. He's the one who is holy, separate from sin, distinctly pure. He is the standard for perfection. In him there is no darkness at all. He's the holy one. And then secondly, he describes himself as the one who is true. And that word means real. He is genuine. I spent the last week as a director at camp. Uh, I think I've pro I was probably lied to more last week than I have been lied to in a long time. Uh, had all the evidence, all the facts, stand in front of a young person and say, now I know the facts, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell the truth, and what did I get? A lie. It's so refreshing to come to the Lord Jesus, and what do you find out? He's the one who is true. He keeps his word, he is what he presents, he completes what he promises, he's real, he's true, he's genuine. That's a comfort to know. Christ is holy in character, and he's true in character. He's the one without sin, and he is the one without deception. And that's important that we understand that about him, because when we know that he's holy and we know that he's true, then when he opens a door for us, we know we can trust him to go through that door. And that's the third attribute that he chooses to describe himself as. He is sovereign. He says, I've got the key of David, I open doors that no one can close, and I shut doors that no one can open. Now, what is the key of David? Well, if you want to mark a verse, you can mark Isaiah 22, 22, because there it talks about how King Hezekiah gives Eliakim, his steward, the key of the house of David. And there it represents all the authority of the kingdom, the ability to go throughout the kingdom and open whatever doors he wanted to to the kingdom. And so the key of David is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of sovereignty. And Christ holds the key to the kingdom. He unlocks and he locks and nobody changes that. The Lord Jesus is the one who has the key to salvation and service and opportunity. All salvation, holiness, truth, service, every missionary effort, every gospel outreach is opened by Jesus Christ. And as I spent the last two weeks, the first week in Seattle and last week down in Tennessee, uh, working with teenagers, it's exciting in a week of camp to see the Lord Jesus open a door. 
because it's inevitable when you work at camps at long periods of time, you see that the first few days, there are big barriers in everybody's lives, and they don't want to let those go, and they, they have built up barriers between them and God, and it's so exciting to see the Lord Jesus just sort of open the door. And especially when I was out in Seattle, it happened on Wednesday. In fact, it happened on Wednesday at Mid-South. The Lord just kind of opened the door, and there was a, a flood of revival in the working of the Spirit of God. But he has control of that. Nobody can open that door. It's up to him. He's the sovereign one who opens the door to opportunities. He holds the keys, and he opens the doors to opportunity. And so the one who is holy and true and sovereign writes to the church in Philadelphia, and what does he say? Notice verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. He's got the keys, and he puts before them an open door that nobody can shut. They've got tremendous opportunity, a wide open door, a door for salvation, for service, for the mission field, for the kingdom of God. And a door in Scripture seems to speak of opportunity for new territory for God, an opportunity to further God's kingdom. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, Paul and Barnabas told the church there how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, a spiritual door that God had opened for opportunity. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul writes and says, a wide door for effective service has opened to me. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, he says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians 4, 3, he says, pray that God may open up to us a door for the word. And so Christ is the one with the keys, and he opens and he closes doors. He opens doors into spiritual territory. He opens doors of blessing, and he opened a door for the church in Philadelphia. And that's why everybody was saying, God is at work there, and God is blessing there, and things are happening in Philadelphia. Now, the question that I want us to ask at this point is why. Why did Christ put an open door before this church. What qualities did they have that led Christ to bless them? Why this church and not another church? The answer to that is in the rest of verse 8. And Christ gives three reasons why he opened the door to the church at Philadelphia that no one could shut. And there are three reasons there. Your Bible probably says because or for, which is the same word. He's going to give three reasons why he opened the door for this church. The first reason in verse 8 is because you have a little power. First reason, because you have a little power. Now that may refer to their size. And he may be saying because you're small. Although I don't think that's what he's saying because I know a lot of small church, churches that aren't being blessed. Christ isn't looking around and saying, let me find a small church and I'll bless them. Uh, that's not the idea here. I think the idea is that they were small in power. In fact, the Greek word used here is the Greek word micros or micro. Uh, and it means small or least. He's saying you have micro power. You are least in power. That's why I blessed you. You know, the prerequisite for being used by God is not having great power. It's having micro power and knowing it. The prerequisite for being used by God is not having great power, it's being least in power and recognizing that about yourself. 
God's not looking for people who think they're powerful. He's looking for people who know they're not. And that's who He blesses. And that's who He uses. You know, God probably opened more doors of opportunity for Paul than anyone else. And if we were able to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what was your secret? Why did God open so many doors for you? Why did God bless so much in your life? Paul, was it because you had great power? What would Paul say? 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel. I have this treasure of salvation and eternal life and the, the gospel of Christ. I have it in a, in a clay jar, referring to himself. And he said, I have it in this clay jar so that the power may come from God and not from me. Is it your power, Paul? No, I'm this fragile clay jar, but God's put this great treasure inside of me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he said, God's power is perfected in what? In weakness. So I boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me because when I am weak, then I am strong. So what's your secret, Paul? I know that I only have weakness to offer God. I only have micro power to offer God. But when I recognize my weakness and I surrender it to him, he manifests his strength in me. And to be used by God, you don't need to be strong in your own self. You need to be weak. I arrived in, in Seattle two weeks ago Saturday. And it's an intimidating thing to arrive at a camp and you find out there's like 115 11th and 12th graders there waiting for you to speak twice a day to them and impact their lives. That's rather intimidating. And I sat in my room that Saturday and, and they had asked me to come down in about an hour and share some things with the counselors on what I wanted to see happen that week. And so I sat in the room and I was just praying about the week and, and feeling very inadequate before God. And, and uh, the Lord gave me a verse. And it's over in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And I was saying to the Lord, Lord, how am I going to make it through these two weeks? How am I going to make it? And 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I was reading about the king of Judah named Uzziah. Uh, and it talks about him uh, all through the chapter. But for instance, in verse 6, it says, Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath. And verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and uh, verse 8, the Ammonites gave tribute to Uzziah. Verse 9, moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and so on. Verse 10, and he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns and he had much livestock. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle and it gives the total of that. And, and uh, verse 14, moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears and helmets and so on. Verse 15, and in Jerusalem he made engines of war invented by skillful men to put on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread abroad for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. What a great verse. 
He was marvelously helped by God until he became strong. And when he thought he was strong, pride came in and God could no longer work in his situation. And God gave me that verse. To say the secret here is not to be strong. The secret is what? To be weak and know where your dependence is. It's on God to produce in you. And God was saying, I will work through you as long as you stay weak. But when you become strong, I can't work anymore. If God isn't marvelously helping you, maybe it's because you're too strong. God manifests his power in weakness. And the church in Philadelphia recognized that. In themselves, they had micro power. And Christ opened the door for opportunity. Then there's a second reason given in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. And the second reason is, Christ says, because you have kept my word. Christ opens the door to the church that keeps his word. And not all churches do. The church at Sardis didn't. The church in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, at Sardis didn't keep his word, and so he had to write to them in verse 3 and say, remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. They were not keeping his word. Not all churches do. And today we see around us the, the word of God being replaced by philosophy and psychology and sociology in so many churches. Somebody spoke to me recently in, about this church and said this church is going to continue to grow because this church teaches the word of God. Well, let me go a step further. Philadelphia not only preached the word, they practiced it. They applied it. That's what it means to keep the word. You see, you remember the first church we talked about in, in Revelation chapter 2 was the, the church at Ephesus. Ephesus preached the word, but they didn't practice the word. They were very careful that they preached the word and they preached it accurately and they held to it tightly, but they didn't practice what it said. They are the church that left their first love, their love for Christ. Well, the church at Philadelphia preached the word and they practiced the word and they held on to their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say that in reference to them, but I know that they held on to their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus said this in John 14, 23. He said, if anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. And they kept his word, which tells me that they loved him. And the way you express your love for Christ is by applying his word to your life. And so Christ opens the door to the church that preaches and practices the word of God. And then there's a third thing about this church that stands out. And that is, he says to them at the end of verse 8, you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. Jesus is speaking. You know, there's a special significance to the name of Jesus Christ. If you'll go back to the book of Acts and read through those early chapters in the book of Acts, you will find a great emphasis on the name of Jesus Christ. When the man is healed in Acts chapter 3, he, Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, walk. Great emphasis on the word. The preaching there is talking about the fact that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name than the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, we find the early apostles arrested, and they're arrested, and the charge against them when they're released is, we don't want you to speak anymore in this name, the name of Jesus. In the, Acts chapter 5, we find 
the apostles are flogged and released and they go away rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There is suffering associated with the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things go together in this world. In fact, have you noticed that people will talk about God and they will talk about the good Lord, but if you start talking about Jesus, what happens? They get real uncomfortable. It's okay to talk about the good Lord and how he's working, but when you get specific about the Lord Jesus, there is a fence in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus promised that in Matthew 10, 22. He said, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. Well, the church in Philadelphia was persecuted for their faith, and they didn't deny the name of Jesus Christ. They held on to his name, and when the persecution came, they didn't deny that they were tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to have a door of opportunity open for you? Do you want to see God's blessing in your life, among your family, and among your friends? Then we need to learn from the church in Philadelphia. They recognized that they just had small power. They put into practice God's word, and they didn't deny Christ's name no matter what it cost them. And then you want to see the results of this open door? First of all, the first result is that their enemies would be humbled. That's verse 9. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. There was in Philadelphia a Jewish synagogue. And this Jewish synagogue was apparently the major source of the church's persecution. And Christ says, they say they're Jews, but they're not. They say they belong to God, but they don't. They're really a synagogue of Satan. And they say that they tell the truth, but they don't even do that because they lie. And they are in stark opposition to the church. But what a promise that the Lord Jesus gives to this church here. He says, I've put before you an open door, and if you will go through that open door, I'll cause your enemies to come and bow down and know that I have loved you. What's he promising? He's promising the salvation of their enemies, the salvation of the Jews. If you'll go through this open door that I've set before you, I'll bring your enemies to salvation. You say, well, when's that going to happen? Well, he doesn't say. He just says, I will do it. It may have been weeks, it may have been months, it may have been years. Their call was to be faithful in this situation and to go through the doors that he opened and he would bring salvation to their enemies. You say, well, if I knew that that would happen, if I knew that my enemies would actually be saved by something I could do, I'd do it. Well, then what you need to do is recognize your little power and depend on God's power. What you need is to keep His Word and what you need is to never deny His name. And when the door of opportunity presents itself, you need to go through it. That's all they did. You know, it's easy to keep God's Word and to not deny Christ's name when the revival is taking place. I've seen that the last two weeks. You, you have 
carnal Christians, and they're sitting back doing nothing. And then when the revival starts breaking loose, you find carnal Christians witnessing. Because it's, it, it's easy then. When God's blessing, it becomes real easy to do. And they kind of get swept up in what's, what God is doing, and it's kind of almost like positive peer pressure. Everybody's talking about the Lord, so I'll talk about the Lord now when it doesn't cost me anything. But see, he's not talking about that here. He's talking about recognizing your little power and surrendering it to God. He's talking about keeping his word when it's not the thing to do. And he's talking about not denying Christ's name when it costs you something. When somebody's going to laugh at you and somebody's going to insult you and it's not going to be the most popular thing in the world to do. He says, if you'll do that then, then I'll open a door that nobody can close. And if you'll go through that door, I'll bring the salvation of your enemies. Anybody in your life that you think is unreachable for Christ? Anybody in your life that you look at and think they could never be saved? That's the kind of people he's talking about here. He's saying, I'm going to open a door for you, and if you'll be faithful and go through that door, I'll bring the salvation of those people who are actually persecuting you in your life. What an exciting thing that would be. And then there's a second result that he gives and that is that they would be preserved from maximum affliction. Verse 10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now Christ says an hour of testing was coming upon the world, but it wasn't going to come upon this church. He says, I'm going to keep you from that. This is a church that, that didn't need any more refining. They had already been refined by Christ's Word. And he says, you don't need that testing that's going to come. And he doesn't just preserve them from the testing, but it says he preserves them from the hour of testing. Now, I think that refers to what he's going to talk about later in the book of Revelation, which is that period of tribulation that's going to come upon the whole world. And he says of this church, I'm going to preserve you from that. Uh, and many take this verse to refer in a broader sense to the entire believing church to be delivered from the tribulation period. And uh, I think it probably refers to that, although this verse alone is not the, the only verse you're going to stand on to reach that conclusion. But it's as if he says, because you go through the open door I give you here on earth, I'm going to open a door for you right into heaven and deliver you from that hour of tribulation that is to come. So the results are you see the salvation of your enemies and you are delivered from the tribulation period. Then he gives sort of an exhortation and a warning in verse 11. He says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one takes your crown. Jesus says, I'm coming suddenly. And to the faithful church, he says, I want you to hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Now, various crowns are talked about in Scripture. There's the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory, and they represent rewards. They don't represent salvation, but they represent rewards that Christians receive. The question is, can you lose your crown? And the answer is yes. You can lose your crown. Somebody can grab it. Sin can cause you to lose it. You can build up a reward and actually lose your reward in this lifetime. 2 John 8 says, Watch yourselves that you might not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. 
Colossians 2.18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward. Let no one defraud you. Take away your reward. And in relationship to reward in the Christian life, there's much said about finishing the race. And so even to the faithful, Christ adds this warning. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. That's not something you can lose. But it has something to do with losing your reward. And what a sad thing to live your life for Christ and and have Him reward you and then later in life find yourself doing things that cause that reward to be taken away. That's a sad thought. And so He leaves this warning even with the faithful church. Be careful that nobody takes away your reward. And then he gives some promises, as he does to all, in all these letters. In verse 12, he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Neat promises there. They really fall into two categories. First of all, he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God. Now, I think these people knew what a pillar was. Uh, because if you, if you look at old ruins, what do you see left in the ruins of old cities? You see the pillars still standing there. And I, and I imagine even when the earth, earthquakes came, oftentimes the, the ceiling would fall down and everything. And when they came back into town, a lot of the pillars were still standing there. So this was a very vivid illustration. He says to them, I am going to make you a pillar. The very last thing that ever falls, something very stable, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God. And if you'll look over on your own time in Revelation 21, 22, you'll find that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because God and Christ are the temple. God and Christ are the temple and we are pillars in that spiritual temple. And that's something very stable. And then he adds to that, and you will not go out from it anymore. To these people in this city where they'd get little tremors and they all run out of town, he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God. And you won't ever have to go out anymore. You'll be there stably and surely and securely. And this is assurance that he adds to them. And then he says, I will write on you three things. The name of my God, and I think that speaks of possession, that he possesses us. The name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which speaks of our citizenship. We will be citizens there. And then he says, I will write on you my new name. Look at a verse with me. Revelation 19, 12. Jesus is going to get a new name. You say, well, what is his new name? Revelation 19, 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Jesus is going to have a new name that only he knows. But you know what what the promise is here? To the church of Philadelphia, the church that goes through the open door, he says, I'm going to write my new name on you. To the church that doesn't deny his name here on earth when it costs us something, he's going to take that new name and he's going to share it with us. He's going to write it on us. What an exciting thing. 
How do you deal with the name of Jesus now? Do you deny his name or do you hold up his name? He says, for those who hold up his name, I will write my new name on them. And I think that speaks of our union with him. It's as if we take his name as the bride takes the groom's name. We're going to take the new name of Christ in union with him. And then verse 13 adds those familiar words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you the kind of person that Christ would put an open door before? Are we the kind of church that Christ would put an open door before? Are people saying, God is blessing there. God is working there. Things are happening there. Let's be challenged by the church in Philadelphia. They had a little strength, and they knew it. They kept God's Word, and they didn't deny Christ's name. And Christ opened the door to revival on earth and the door to reward in heaven. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word today and for this challenge. And Lord, we want to see you bless, and so oftentimes we restrict you from doing so because we're not the kind of people that you can open the door for. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that in order to allow your strength to flow through us, that we need to realize that we have none of our own to offer. And Lord, that we might be people who truly don't just hear your word, but do your word. And Lord, that we might be people who really lift up the name of Jesus Christ and honor him even when it costs us something so that we can be the kind of people that you will open the door that can never be shut and that we might be able to be the tools that you use to reach a lost world. And Lord, in all of that, we want to give you all the glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.